This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for another history episode of the podcast is Eric Mills, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. Hello, Eric. Ward, happy February to you. Happy February, laddie. Um, what, <laughs> what is happening at Naval History Magazine? What, what's, what's percolating? What's coming up? Well, we're staying out of the wintry cold and uh, cranking out the next issue. Um, Coming right around the bend, first of March, we have the uh, March-April issue coming out. Lots of goodies in there for folks, um, so stay tuned for that. We've got a great piece on um, the Battle of the Yalu River, the first battle in 1894, and how that set the stage for the things we're seeing in the Pacific today. Karma of all that starts in the late 1800s, and this piece by Andrew Blackley looks at now what happened in that first Sino-Japanese War set the stage for what we're looking at in China, the Indo-Pacific now. Uh, that's a great one. We've got a great 60-year uh, retrospective piece on the Bay of Pigs uh, written by Norman Friedman uh, with a lot of good naval strategic aspects of it gone into. And also, as an added bonus, we have an incredible Naval Institute oral history of a young sailor who was at the Bay of Pigs. And we have his firsthand account of that landing. I wish we'd had room for a larger excerpt because... Uh, that guy was right there on the front line of history. So we got a nice Bay of Pigs package in there for folks. A couple great World War II pieces, one of which they um, fix a mistake in the historical record about a kamikaze attack. And this is done by social media. Social media sleuths got together and saw they corrected the historical record on this particular World War II incident. There's uh, websites dedicated to the veterans groups and whatnot. And, you know, Descendant A had this artifact. Descendant B had this artifact. And they got together by social media. They never would have talked otherwise. So it's a great example of that kind of synergy you get or that can occur on that level. You hear a lot of bad stuff about that sort of thing. But there are good things happening, too, with that sort of social media synergy. So this is a nice sort of example of that, plus a heck of a good World War II sea story. Uh, we got some great age of sail in there, uh, the Vietnam uh, marine piece that people are going to be wowed by. So we're excited about this issue. So stay tuned, folks. All right. Well, so February is Black History Month, and I draw our listeners' attention to the most recent Naval Institute Proceedings newsletter, which featured an article that uh, one of our, not a member of the editorial team, but, but Tara wrote, um, about Carl Bouchier. It's a really cool article, and it also is sort of best practice UX in that it includes a snippet from the oral history that he did with uh, our friend Paul Stilwell, uh, formerly a member of the staff who has done our oral history program for a long time. But he sat down with Carl in, I think, the 90s. This was like early 90s where uh, they sat down, and he talks about how they uh, fished out a 
nuclear weapon that had fallen off a B-52 in the, uh, the Mediterranean. And, and in the process, he lost a leg. Uh, that's where he was uh, amputated. Um, so it's an amazing, amazing story. And as we know, because this was made into a movie, he was the first black Navy diver. Uh, and so, again, Black History Month, which is a lovely segue to our current guest. So let's get right to uh, Commander B.J. Armstrong. I'm real excited about the guest today. And B.J. Armstrong is no stranger to the magazine, but he has a real winner in the current January-February issue. It's a timely one for us to go over in our podcast today. It is very fittingly titled A Hero, and it tells the remarkable Seriously remarkable story of how, in a con- commandeered Confederate steamer, Robert Smalls piloted himself and other slaves to freedom, and they garnered the plaudits of a grateful Union Navy. This is a remarkable story, and um, it's a good one to uh, revive and tell again every now and then, and I think this is a very good time to be telling it. And BJ, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Robert Smalls story? Ward, Eric, thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. Smalls is a a fascinating figure from our American naval history who uh, unfortunately has seemed to fall through the cracks for the most part um, in in what we think of as the, the heroes of the U.S. Navy in the 19th century. Smalls uh, was himself a slave. He was born in uh, Beaufort, South Carolina, and uh, he was, he was raised in the, the McKee household. Henry McKee was the South Carolina planter that, that owned him, and his, his mother was a house slave. So when he was growing up, he grew up in the, in the house with the family. But as tended to happen amongst uh, the rich planters, once Smalls reached the age of 12 or 13 and could become worth money to them, uh, he headed off to Charleston instead of staying there in the house. And, and it's, we get from his story, we get to see this fascinating uh, example of how the slave economy worked. We get to see a fascinating example of uh, maritime heroism. We get to see, honestly, uh, great operational naval history. Uh, through his service in the American Civil War, he once he gains his freedom, he is involved in 17 different combat engagements with the Union Navy fighting the Confederates. And then we, and then he's a fascinating political figure because after the war itself, he goes on to become a, a significant uh, figure in the South Carolina politics. He's elected to the South Carolina State Senate, and he eventually is elected to the House of Representatives as a, an African-American congressman in the, in the Reconstruction era. And so Smalls himself is this figure who he brings together all these threads of American history in the Civil War and and Reconstruction era. uh, And yet uh, there are very few monuments to him, you know, in in his hometown uh, is really the only place he's recognized. Uh, There's never been a USS Smalls. It illustrates for us how the American uh, historical experience is can be naval, but also be wider. Um, and all of this that he achieves, it's, as you point out, it's just an astounding um, story of a, uh, his arc of his life. It goes from abject chattel slavery all the way to U.S. congressman and um, 
there's all sorts of poetic justice just inherent in his personal narrative. But it all hinges on the roll of the dice of this courageous act of escape. And the fact that he was working um, on the waterfronts of Charleston, South Carolina, and happened to be working on a sidewheel steamer, the planter, which you can tell us about here in a minute, put him in an advantageous spot. But life can put that kind of thing in front of you, but it takes some real guts to seize that moment when, when it's there. And it's almost uh, cinematic in the suspense and some of the things he does here. And you mentioned the economy. I have to give a little dig before I pass this on to you. Yes, Robert Smalls works his way up, as you tell in the story, to where he's a quite successful pilot in the waters of Charleston Harbor. He starts from Stevedore, works his way up to pilot. But as such, he knows every nook and cranny of those, those waterways. He's on a vessel that ironically, to me, this is so ironic, and you can talk about this. It's a jack-of-all-trades vessel. Right. But it's also considered the personal ship of the brigadier general in command of Charleston Harbor of all vessels for slaves to escape in. How ironically perfect they escape in this guy's ship. And I'm going to let you tell the story of how they do that. It's amazing the how well thought out they did. It was. But it's more than just thinking it out. Like I said, it's the bravery to do it when you have that one chance to do it. I think you're right. It, it is kind of cinematic in, in the story of the escape itself. So the planter was, as you mentioned, kind of this multi-purpose steamer that worked Charleston's waterways. But before the Civil War began, before Fort Sumter, uh, Smalls had already been working on board planter and had worked his way kind of up through the ranks and become what was known as the wheelman. Uh, and so we think of a wheelman as kind of the coxswain, uh, the the chief of the boat to use kind of Navy parlance today. So he was the senior of the, of the enlisted on this, the equivalent to enlisted on this vessel. Now all of the equivalent to enlisted on this vessel were slaves. And this is the way that the, the maritime economy worked in Charleston was much of the coastal trade networks. The crewmen on board, these vessels were actually slaves and, and, in the case of Smalls, he, he was paid a salary, but the salary went to Henry McKee uh, back home. Um, Smalls actually got to keep a small amount of it, right? Because he had to live. He had to have, he had to sustain himself in the city of Charleston itself. So he got to keep a percentage of his salary to, to support himself. But the vast majority of his pay went back to his owner, uh, Henry McKee. And most of the other slaves on the crew were, were like this. So they had all been working together for quite some time. The Civil War begins. And, and, you know, it's really not until as summer approaches in 1862, so a while after the war's begun, that they decide that it's time. Um, they knew that there was an opportunity to escape. You know, Francis uh, Samuel DuPont, Samuel Francis DuPont had brought a squadron south. They had already attacked and taken Port Royal and established the Navy, the Union Navy's blockading base there. The blockading squadron had a tight blockade on the mouth of, of Charleston Harbor there. And so being watermen, they knew, right? They knew that the Union Navy was right there. They, they saw the ships regularly when they were out working the waterways. And so over time, they had figured that it was, it was time to make a, 
time to make a move. Whether whether they were going to make it or not, it was now was the opportunity. And Smalls got together with his crewmates, and they started thinking about how they would try and do this. And what they realized was that their their officers, the three white men who were the officers of the planter, were not following SOP, the standard operating procedure. So the rules for the vessels in Charleston Harbor were that the officers were supposed to spend the night aboard on the vessels. But all three of these men were from Charleston. And so Riley and the, the other two officers regularly went home to sleep in their own beds with their wives. And they could pretty much track this. Smalls and his the crew could pretty much track this. They knew that if they had been gone for a couple days out on a mission, that odds were when they got back that night, the officers were going to go home and they would be left alone on the vessel. Uh, and sure enough, on the 12th of May in 1862, uh, it's pretty much what happened. They they returned from Stono Inlet, where they had been dismantling a Confederate a minor Confederate fortress. They had the hold of the vessel was full of cannon and and military stores, ammunition, all the stuff that they had been pulling out of this fort. And they tied up alongside the headquarters of Brigadier General Roswell Ripley, who was the the commander of the Charleston defenses. And so they tied up literally right outside the front door of his headquarters, basically, is where this ship was moored. And the officers went home for the night. Uh, and so in the early morning hours of the 13th is when Smalls and the crew decided to, to make their break for it. And they acted like it was just another normal day. Uh, so they were getting what appeared to be a little bit of an early start, but they started to get up steam. The crew, once they got up steam, you know, it took a little while to warm up the engines and get the ship ready to go. They were watching the guards who were walking up and down the waterway, you know, keeping an eye on things. Uh, no one did anything. Once they had full steam up, the linesmen came out and they cast off the lines and they got underway and literally waved to a few of the guards who waved back as they steamed away from the, from the pier there. And then they did something unusual. Instead of heading downstream and, and towards the Atlantic, they turned upstream. The reason they turned upstream was because they weren't about to leave without their families. Many of these men had, had wives, had children who were living in Charleston, and they weren't going to leave without them. And so instead of turning and running as quick as they could, they headed upstream to a kind of a quieter pier area, quieter part of the quay, uh, where they could tie up and pick up their families. So they took this enormous risk of heading deeper into Charleston, uh, tied up alongside another vessel where they picked up their families, as well as another slave who had helped them from that vessel who had been hiding their families overnight, and then turned around to head out of Charleston Harbor. Now, as you mentioned, Smalls knew these waters like the back of his hand, right? He had been working this area as the wheelman on planter for years now. So when it came to the hazards of Charleston Harbor, the sandbars, um, the places that the Confederates had sunk vessels in order to keep the Union ships from being able to come in, all the different obstacles that had been created, the minefields, I mean, Charleston Harbor was a fortress harbor, and, and Smalls knew his way out. And so in this early morning in, in 1862, they just started steaming down the channel, just like it was a normal work day. Families were hidden in the hold down below, and everyone was trying to act normal. And one of the things they needed to do to appear normal 
was to have it appear like the skipper of the vessel was on board. Now, the skipper was this guy named Charles Riley, and and he always wore a giant floppy straw hat. He was a southerner. He wanted to keep the sun off himself. And so he was kind of well known on the waterfront for this giant straw hat. So as they got up steam and got underway after picking up their families, Robert Smalls put one of the other crew members at the wheel and he went back into the captain's cabin and he put on the captain's uniform and he put on his giant floppy straw hat and positioned himself kind of in the corner of the wheelhouse, just sort of in the shadows, but but visible enough that someone looking through the windows into the pilot house could see that giant straw hat there and could see what appeared in all appearances to be the silhouette of just another normal work day for the Confederate steamer planter. I, I like what you say going deeper on what they did to get out of the channel, um, that they also sent a signal from the code book announcing the intention to pass out of the harbor. So as you said, just another normal day, everything's normal, people waving. It reminds me of what we learned during plebe year, which is you can get away with a lot if you just act like you know what you're doing, right? That's the lesson of plebe year. <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's exactly what they're leveraging here. There are five different gun batteries that the planter has to go past. And each time they have to raise the signal, you know, with the flags or, or with the whistle or the horn of the vessel, they have to give the signal to, to say they're going about normal business, but they had the signal book, right? They were a Confederate warship. And so as, as they passed each of these gun batteries, they, they just gave the proper signal and, you know, he kind of nodded the floppy straw hat in the right direction. And, and the batteries just waved them on through. They navigated around the minefields. They headed out towards uh, towards the open water. And, and the last place that they had to get past was was Fort Sumter itself. You know, Fort Sumter, famously the heart of the defenses of Charleston. And Smalls had a choice as they approached Fort, Sum- Fort Sumter. The, the channel there was kind of on the wide side and and he could swing wide and try and keep his distance. And that way, they, you know, the guards on Sumter wouldn't get a good look at the vessel, wouldn't get a good look at the crew and, and figure out that something was wrong. The problem with swinging wide was nobody tended to do that. It might appear suspicious. And so instead, he hugged close aboard Fort Sumter. In fact, they were steaming so close that he waved to one of the guards standing on the walls who waved back as they sounded the whistle and gave the signal and Fort Sumter signaled them to go on past. Uh, And so as they headed past Fort Sumter and, and freedom was kind of at hand for these, these men and their families, there was this moment of holding their breath, waiting to see if Fort Sumter would, would do anything. And, and they didn't until it was too late as they continued to steam towards the Atlantic and towards the union blockading squadron. It dawned on someone in Fort Sumter that this, this part of it was not normal. Having a a steamer like planter go past Fort Sumter and then turn left or turn right to go in one of the inland waterway areas was relatively normal. But the idea that it was going to keep heading towards the Atlantic was not normal. And eventually they opened fire on the planter, but it was too late. It was already out of range. 
So how did the Union Navy receive them? Well, so there's the problem. Imagine yourself as the lieutenant in command of a blockading vessel, right? And you see coming towards you a Confederate steamer steaming at high speed because, right, Smalls and his crew have opened up the stops. They have, they're flank. They're trying to get away. So you've got a Confederate warship coming at you at flank speed and the fort behind it firing what appears to be in your direction. Well, this describes the experience of, of Lieutenant J.F. Nichols, who is the commander of the USS Onward, which is the nearest blockading vessel to where Planter is making its ex- escape. Now, you know, Onward is a, a sail vessel, does not have the ability to maneuver all that well, does not have an engine. She's anchored out for the evening. So dawn is just kind of happening. It's just starting to get bright enough out. You can see this vessel rushing towards you. And he calls his crew to quarters. They beat the crew to quarters. They man the guns. They are ready for this attack. Unable to get underway because it's a sail vessel, they, they use the spring lines on the anchors to try and maneuver the ship to get their broadside in position so they can open fire on planter. But for some reason, Nichols holds his fire. He doesn't open fire yet. And as the planter rushes towards these, these Union vessels, Smalls and his crew realize they have a problem. You know, they, for a moment, they were glory, you know, it was glorious because they had escaped. Uh, but then they realized, oh, we're, we're headed into the belly of the beast again here, right? And so brilliantly, one of the crew members goes back into the captain's cabin and strips the linens off the bed. And with that white sheet, he runs to the yard arm and hoists a giant white flag of surrender. And it's this giant white flag that some of the lookouts on board onward spot and point out to Captain Nichols and they hold their fire. And Planter is able to approach the Union blockading ship and and Robert Smalls just very coolly just slides her right up alongside and welcomes Lieutenant Nichols to come on aboard, take control of the Planter. And Nichols is floored. He, you, in, in the reports that he writes to uh, Admiral DuPont and, and the commanders, he's absolutely floored by what's happened here. It is, it is the strangest thing that he's experienced thus far in the war. And, and as he points out, uh, it is a wealth of a prize for the Union Navy because it's not just the vessel itself, but it's all the intelligence that that vessel brings with it. It's all of those code books. It's the charts that are on board that map out the minefields. And it's the enormous knowledge of Robert Smalls and his crew that are all now in Union hands. And so the vessel itself, yeah, sure, it's great to have another ship. But really, the intelligence value of this escape is enormous for the Union Navy to understand what's really going on inside Charleston. So the, you have one section that's called From Contrabands to Crewmen. You know, you, you imagine they come alongside and there's they're tears and they you know, we're free, except there are some details left in terms of what they're technically, what their status is technically. Um, you go through great detail about, about the language associated with that. And then the leadership of, of DuPont, who actually sees Small's inherent talents and leverages them. So let's talk a little bit about that. 
So the, the reality of escaped slaves and African-Americans in the Civil War is, is wrapped up in the, the issues of chattel slavery, right? And that, that slaves are seen as, as property. So when, when we're talking about uh, any conflict, when, when a combatant is trying to resupply themselves and they're, they're get supply ships, merchant ships that are carrying stuff from one place to another, the goods that are used to fight a war, those goods are, illegally speaking, are called contraband of war. Right? So in, in the lead up to the War of 1812, when American merchants were carrying uh, weapons and ammunition and other things to the French or to the British during the Napoleonic Wars, those Americans were carrying contraband of war, goods that the French didn't want the British to have or the British didn't want the French to have in order to fight their war. So as the Civil War begins, the Union Navy has to figure out what they're going to do with slaves because slaves start showing up for the Union Navy to deal with. And so the Union Navy refers to them as contrabands because they are contraband of war if if they're considered property, which the Emancipation Proclamation has not happened yet. Right? And so they are still considered property. And so that's where the the, the kind of phrase comes from. They're referred to as the contrabands because because they're contraband of war. There's an actual specific history of how that coin was termed. It was coined by uh, the Union General Benjamin Butler in May of 61. All these slaves are fleeing Virginia, Tidewater, Virginia, across the lines. And early in the war, the South is saying, you need to return those. Those are our property. Butler is a lawyer turned general from New England, right? And he knows he has the South over a barrel now. If you're going to consider these human beings property, then that makes them contraband of war. So now we're hell no, we're not going to give him back. And as soon as he did that, there was always a flood over the lines as soon as the Lincoln soldiers showed up. So there was a kind of a, a, a northern lawyer turned general invents that term as a way to circumvent the South getting their slaves back. So for a naval officer like, like this captain on board the Onward, or this lieutenant who was the captain of the Onward, this, was not, this, this wasn't an unusual thing as the war goes on, because once, once slaves knew that they would be considered contraband of war and not returned to the Confederacy, well, the easiest way to escape now becomes going to the beach, right? So before the war, if a, if a slave wants to escape slavery, they have to head north. They have to activate the Underground Railroad. They have to figure out a way to get north. And oh, by the way, they really have to get to Canada because of the fugitive slave laws that still make them at risk in the northern states. But now, once the war has begun, and once they're considered contrabands, all they have to do is get to the beach, because all they have to do is get close enough to flag down a U.S. Navy vessel. And that U.S. Navy vessel will come get them. And so Smalls is and his crew are not a one-off example. They, they are indicative of a, a larger thing that happens. There's another famous example, relatively famous example, and that is of, of William Gould, who is a, a slave who escapes with a group in, uh, from Wilmington. There's a yellow fever outbreak in Wilmington, and they, in North Carolina, and they take that as an opportunity uh, to slip out one night with a giant rowboat 
and they escape. Gould, we know from history because he joins the U.S. Navy, like many of these uh, contrabands do, and he ends up keeping a diary, and the diary survives. And so as a historian's source, the Gould diary is a is a wealth of information about what it was like to be an African-American in the Union Navy. So, you know, Gould, Smalls, this is, this is a larger narrative of slaves escaping. And once they escaped, for the most part, they were given the opportunity to join the United States Navy once these Union Navy vessels had picked them up. And many, many of them did. Now, Smalls was a unique case. In, in his case, he didn't actually join the U.S. Navy. Most of his crew were, well, not a number of his crew, maybe not most, but a number of his crew did. They enlisted and joined. They became landsmen in, in the U.S. Navy. They, they joined the vessels of the blockading force off Charleston. But in Small's case, he was too valuable for that. He actually met the, the next morning after their escape. He's standing on the flagship of Admiral DuPont. And he meets the admiral and he's talking with the admiral. And, and in the admiral's report back to Gideon Wells, the secretary of the Navy, he is blown away by Smalls. Not just the knowledge this guy has, but he, he can tell he's an enormously intelligent person and an enormously valuable uh, addition to the blockading squadron from his knowledge, from his skills. And so actually, DuPont ends up getting him hired as a civilian to serve as a pilot with the blockading squadron. He eventually is paid actually by the U.S. Army instead of by the U.S. Navy. And this is because these contrabands, these escaped slaves, can only be enlisted sailors in the Union Navy by the policy that's set up. And DuPont knows that if, if he makes Smalls an enlisted sailor, sailor he's going to disappear into the kind of the bowels of the Navy. He's going to disappear. All that wealth of knowledge and skill is, is going to be useless to him because he's just going to be made a landsman and he's going to be, you know, scrubbing decks and hauling on lines and working gun crews. While we say that Smalls is lost to history, I would also submit that Samuel DuPont is lost to history because of what you just said. And let me read the exact quote or the exact writings that, that you mentioned that he, he writes to Wells. So he says, the bringing out of this steamer under all the circumstances would have done credit to anyone, including white naval officers. And he continues, Robert Smalls is superior to any who have come to our lines, intelligent as many of them have been. This information has been most interesting and portions of it of the utmost importance. So that specific language obviously points out just how impressed and as you lay out the circumstances, BJ, that's pretty miraculous if you consider this guy prima facie as contraband. And then after your first meeting, you're like, whoa, hold it. You know, let's let's start over here. You know, so how impressive was Smalls on first contact to have that be the Admiral's takeaway? That's amazing. That is an amazing interface. And, and it's not just DuPont who's impressed. It, later on that summer, DuPont uh, and the army generals that are in command at, at Port Royal send DuPont north to Washington because they know he's going to be such a great advocate for what they want, which is emancipation and formal inclusion of blacks into the Union forces. Um, the The both the Navy and the Army around Port Royal and Charleston, 
the the senior leadership believes that the African Americans are a force multiplier, that the the escaped slaves are a force multiplier, and need to be leveraged in in the fight against the Confederacy. And so they send Smalls to Washington, and there is there's indication that the the historical record is not entirely clear, but there's indication that Smalls meets with Lincoln himself, um, and and talks about including more African Americans in, in Union military forces with Lincoln himself. Uh, we have some indication that he meets with Frederick Douglass. Um, and, and Smalls has this huge impact, not just in Washington, but later on he makes trips to New York City and to Philadelphia to raise American interest in the freedom of the African Americans and in emancipation uh, in a way that it kind of it, it indicates his coming future as a political leader. But, you know, before he gets to that, being a political leader, he's still a military leader. So he serves in, like I said, 17 combat engagements throughout the rest of the Civil War with the Union Navy off of Charleston. And, and really the most famous is, is probably, well, it's probably his service on board the USS Keokuk, which is one of the ironclads that assaults Charleston. And in the first battle of Charleston Harbor, he is the pilot on board Keokuk and he serves right alongside the captain, right? They are, they are standing next to each other in the pilot house. So what is, what does Keokuk look like? Is it a sister ship of, of monitor? What, what she's low freeboard? She, she's what's known as one of the tower monitors. Uh, so she actually has kind of two elevated turrets. Uh, so think of a little bit bigger than monitor, probably, uh, so a little bit longer than monitor, more of a, ra- more of a rounded hull shape than the flat kind of shoebox hull of monitor, uh, but with two, t- two turret towers instead of just one. Okay. And in the first battle of Charleston, she's part of the monitor assault force. Now the first battle of Charleston is kind of a disaster for the union Navy. Uh, they don't really get the torpedoes or the mines cleared properly. The maneuverability of these monitors in the, the seas and the winds that they encounter, the currents that they encounter, they have really hard time staying, maintaining their positions. Uh, it, it's, it doesn't go well for the Union Navy. And Small's ship ends up basically toe-to-toe with Fort Sumter. And she blasts away at Fort Sumter, and Fort Sumter point-blank back at her. The captain of the ship says that his estimate was about 90 rounds hit the ironclad from Fort Sumter. And it's it's almost sunk in that spot alongside Fort Sumter. And it's Smalls who is credited with saving the ship. It's his knowledge of the currents, his knowledge of how to maneuver the vessel that he pilot, not the captain, he pilots the vessel out of harm's way and gets it out of range of Fort Sumter before finally the next morning after the crew has been dewatering all night, the next morning, the winds and the seas pick up, water keeps coming on board and the vessel eventually does sink. Um, but but he saves largely is credited with saving the ship and the crew in that moment in the first battle of Charleston, and that's just one of these examples of of the combat that, that Smalls himself is involved in after his escape. So the escape itself is this amazing story, but the rest of his service and then his political biography just add these extra layers on top of it. This is like glory at sea. The, the screenplay writes itself, it seemingly. I don't know how this one has not been teed up. I don't know, BJ, maybe you, you and I should t- take a crack at a, a screenplay here. Um, we'll remind the listener as we talk about ironclads that the founder of the Naval Institute, 
John L. Warden, who was a captain, was the CEO of Monitor in the Civil War and then went on to be the superintendent of the Naval Academy, where he founded the Naval Institute in 1873. So our DNA is very much with the Union Navy. Um, so when you start talking about battles involving ironclads, our ears perk up big time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to historically quibble with you for a moment. So uh, Warden was the senior officer who signed on at the founding of the Naval Institute. But I, I would not, me personally, historically speaking, in my personal and academic capacity, would not credit him as the founder. Because I think the junior officers, I think Foxhall Parker and a number of the other junior officers who actually put the organization together and then went and recruited Warden to give them credibility, those junior officers probably deserve the founding credit. No, I love that. And JOs as the driving force are fundamental to uh, how we run the independent forum. So thank you for making that correction. I do have a t-shirt that says he's the founder, but of course I designed that t-shirt. So uh, maybe I should fix it if we do another run of those. And we'll remind fans of the Naval Academy that the drill field at the Naval Academy is called Warden Field, named for John L. Warden. And you would be surprised. No, BJ, you wouldn't be surprised how many company officers I interface with who do not know that fact. Um, But uh, I love that fun fact. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing here at the Academy. So you've been a, a, a PMP for some years. You're, you're trained warfare, especially you're an H-60 pilot, uh, graduate of the Naval Academy. And when did you become a permanent military professor? As you mentioned, I'm a class of 99 grad from the Academy. I'm a search and rescue and, and spec war helicopter pilot by trade. I started my career flying H-46 Deltas, uh, and we flew them into retirement, my first sea tour, and then I, I uh, retreaded into the 60 Sierra after that. Um, I I am what we call a permanent military professor. So it's actually a a little over 20 years ago, around the time that I was a midshipman, that this program was was invented and really started by Admiral Larson when he was a superintendent here. And, you know, at the Naval Academy, we have this amazing faculty that's, that's made up kind of differently than the other service academies. At the other service academies, the majority of the faculty are military officers who are on rotational orders. Um, And then a few of them, a few military officers who end up staying there for a longer period of time. But, you know, at at West Point, it's something in the neighborhood of 80% of their faculty are are military officers. At the uh, Air Force Academy, I think it's somewhere around 65 to 70% are military officers. Here at the Naval Academy, since the very founding of the institution in 1845, it's been a balanced faculty. So it's about half and half. About 50% are military officers, but the other 50% are civilian academics. They're college professors by trade, you know, PhD holding, research completing um, scholars and, and academics and professors. And so, you know, Admiral Larson and a few other folks kind of came to the realization that, you know, the left hand and the right hand didn't speak the same language. So you have 50% of the faculty that are these civilian academics who have this amazing experience as scholars. You have this 50% with this fleet experience and, and, you know, academic language and Navy language, while there actually is surprisingly a lot in common, there's also a lot not. And how does the, the left hand and the right hand, how do they communicate with each other in order to make this whole thing function? So that's where the permanent military professor cadre came in. The idea was to take officers who had, who had, widespread fleet experience. So you have to be a commander. You have to have been selected for commander in order to even apply to the program. 
So you have to have somewhere 15, 16, 17 years of fleet experience. Um, and you can apply to the program. And then the Navy sends you to finish a PhD. And then you spend the rest of your career here at the Naval Academy teaching in the academic discipline that you've studied. Right? So me, for example, I'll, I will spend the rest of my career here in the history department teaching naval history. Um, I am currently the associate chair in the history department. So think of me as the XO of the history department. I think that's the easiest way to, to parallel that. And I have the great opportunity of teaching American naval history to plebes, but also teaching upper level electives, including research seminars for our history majors. Uh, the current uh, class that I'm teaching is a history of naval thought, uh, really focused on the 20th century. We start with Alfred Thayer Mahan and we move all the way up to the turn of the 21st century. Uh, we read a lot of old proceedings articles, uh, as well as other sources in uh, in that class. And so that it's a it's a wonderful opportunity for me to both uh, help the next generation of naval officers learn their profession, learn their trade, as well as to educate them, right? To make them uh, thinking uh, critical officers who are able to approach the fleet in in not just a lockstep procedural compliance kind of way, but in a way that they actually think about their profession. You just made me feel old, BJ, because you were a mid when I was teaching there, and Admiral Larson had just come up with the PMP program. Um, in fact, at one point, I was considering being the English PMP uh, back when Tim O'Brien was the department chair there, and uh, uh, I was not attached to the English department. I was an adjunct teaching plebe English, and it seemed like a cool idea. The wife didn't want to move to New Haven to do my PhD, so I did not do that, which I regret in many ways because you are proof of concept that that idea that they had, you know, Admiral Larson and Pat Walsh and the others, this sort of interface between church and state, it really has proved itself out. So congratulations for being part of the proof. We'll also mention to the listener that you go way back with the Naval Institute. You were on the editorial board a few years ago. You've published a, a, how many titles with USNI Press? So uh, two, uh, two books, the Mahan book and the Sims book already. And then my co-author, John Fryman, and I have a book coming out in the fall called Developing the Naval Mind. So practitioner, fleet operator, poster child for using the independent forum to its full effect. BJ, thank you for being who you are. Thanks for this article in the February issue of Naval History Magazine titled A Hero, mandatory must-read item here in Black History Month. BJ, always a pleasure. Thanks again for this wonderful article. I look forward to working on the next one with you. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure here chatting with you. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you again next time.